Well, take your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be in chapter 1. It's always a dangerous Sunday when you follow family Sunday breakfast, because all those eggs and cinnamon rolls are finally just starting to settle in your stomach, and you're resting quite comfortably. Don't get too comfortable. Uh, well, as we, as we continue to walk through the book of 1 Timothy, we now are, are in, we are continuing in this ending section of Paul addressing the area of false teachers, talking about his charge to Timothy. It's really a desire for Paul to really impart to Timothy the truths of the gospel and encourage Timothy. Uh, many times if you were to look and study the life of the person of Timothy, and Paul would say things to him like, you know, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. There, there appears to be some level of timidity that would happen in the life of, of Timothy. And yet, Paul saw something in Timothy that oftentimes Timothy had a hard time seeing in himself. And in the midst of this encouragement, in the midst of this charge, he is calling uh, Timothy to continue to fight the good fight of faith, to wage a good warfare. It is going to be very similar to a text of scripture that you will see in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 12, when Paul says to Timothy later on in this book, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." What he's calling Timothy to as an elder of the church in Ephesus in the midst of all kinds of false teaching was really to do this one thing. It was really to help continue to remain focused on fighting the good fight. Now, we need constant reminders. If, if every time we went to the Bible and we continued to say, remember this, or I want to bring this back to your mind, if you're a parent, you know that reminders are always necessary for your children. Are they not? I think, I think to myself how often I think I have probably said, do you remember when I said to my children so often? You know what? As Timothy was Paul's child in the faith, he wanted to remind Timothy of all the very important things in the, in the midst of a very difficult setting. He's charging Timothy as we have been seeing, it, uh, to be vigilant, to stand against false teachers, to be able to remember that the aim of his teaching was love and that he was supposed to go after this with everything in him to guard the flock, to care for them, to watch out for them. And this leads us, as we now have walked through this warning against false teachers, to this very ending section uh, in verses 18 uh, to 20. So if you would follow along with me as I read those, these verses in 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Here's what Paul says. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, and that by them you may, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, when we think about the charge that he's giving him to wage the good fight, to wage the good warfare, we want to talk about three elements this morning. And, and as we think about this, here's the first one. 
If you want to wage a good warfare as a, as a believer, if you want to wage a good warfare as a leader, one of the things that you and I must do, and Paul knew that this was, this was paramount for the life of Timothy as a leader in the church, that you and I must remain focused on the task at hand. Have you ever been out driving on a road? You've been in your car and you've been driving out on the freeway and it's a two-lane freeway and you look beside yourself and there's some car that's pulling up and he's passing or she's passing, but you realize that at some particular point, they're driving, but they're doing one of these, like, and they're on their phone and they might even drive with their steering wheel. I'm not here to condemn anybody if you're doing this, but reality is, what's happening at that moment? What do you notice? I remember thinking, as I see these moments, thinking, I better, this person's a little distracted. I better be careful how long that I stay beside them. Because the longer I stay here, the more they're on their phone, the more they're distracted in their driving, the slightest thing at that moment could steer them in my direction or some other direction to hurt someone else. See, Paul's charge to Tim- Timothy to remain focused was, was, was a high calling to remain focused to the task that he was given at hand. You and I as believers have no less of of an encouragement in the scriptures to remain focused in the life that God has called you and I to live. But have you noticed this about your own life and in your own own, uh, living as you've lived throughout your week? You do tend to get distracted, don't you? Do you notice that some of the slightest things distract you? Some of the smallest moments when things don't go your way or some of the smallest avenues that someone responds in a different way and immediately you go down a distracted component and it's sometimes it's, it's going on with material possessions and sometimes it's going on with, with things that you see someone else have and you want to have them and all of a sudden you get distracted on what the real focus of your life and on our lives should be. Paul in the midst of false teaching, was desirous for Timothy to remain and have this steadfast focus uh, as he looked at what was at stake. Do you notice, here's what he calls them to do. He reminds them and he says, this I charge you. He brings back this military terminology that is so reminiscent of Paul in so many of his different epistles. And he couples it with this idea of waging the good warfare. So he starts with this military term, which is not so distant, by the way. Because if you look very, uh, right back to the very early parts of 1 Timothy chapter 1 that we have covered, he says to Timothy, he says in verse number 3, he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different gospel. What's the charge here that Paul is giving to Timothy? It's not separate from where we've already been. It is the charge that he already gave. The charge is don't follow, don't get distracted by any myths or genealogies or any such newfangled idea of some doctrine that is now deviating from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, I charge you. Lay this in front of your eyes, stay completely focused on it, because if you deviate for one moment as an elder, as a leader in the church, as a member of the church, it is very possible that you will gain a hearing from some and you will be led astray. 
So don't forget when he says, this is what I charge you, Timothy, it comes with a full force of military action to say, don't just be this person who has a deployment papers but refuses to get into action. He says, Timothy, I charge you. And now he even extends this. If you're going to remain focused, you have to, you have to be focused on the charge to protect and be uh, solidified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you remain focused to that degree, now notice Paul's terminology. He continues and he says, this is the charge I give. Keep the church away from false teaching and I entrust this to you. This is such an interesting way that Paul would describe because he gives this language when it means to entrust something to someone. It is the verbiage, it is the language of, in some sense, taking uh, something to a deposit box and saying, this is for safekeeping. But it's with the intention that you don't just leave it in there, but that you know what's in there, you've used it, you've digested it, you've figured out what the gospel is, and you keep it safely. Reminds me of those first moments as a parent when all of a sudden your, your, your son or daughter, uh, in this case for me it was a daughter, who, who would say to me, can I have the car keys? And I think to myself like, I'm entrusting you with these. It's not for you to go lock it up and then look at the car. That wasn't the problem. She wanted to drive it and it was mine. And I wasn't sure what was going to come back. If you've ever been a parent who's handing off your keys to your car that you've just paid for in full, you're thinking, I hope you understand what I'm entrusting to you. I want this back in one piece. This is what Paul is trying to describe to Timothy keep the gospel intact. He's saying to Timothy in previous passages, God has entrusted this to me, and therefore I am entrusting that to you. It's very reminiscent of a very familiar passage that we will come to when when in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this statement. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, it's not something that you just, you get, you get entrusted with it, and then you lock it up in the lockbox, and then you never use it. It's something that you were supposed to look at to see its value, to see what's been entrusted to you to such a degree. And that he would give this to Timothy and entrust to him the leadership of the Ephesian church. Paul had had an extensive ministry in the church of Ephesus. And we had said this before, that Paul would look and say, you know what? Timothy is going to be the one. It reminds us this endearing component of this passage, does it not? I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. This endearing terminology that Paul is describing to help Timothy be encouraged in waging the good warfare, to remain focused on what he was to focus on. And he says, Timothy, you're my child in the faith. You remember these when we were these verses when we were going through the book of Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 where he talks about Timothy in, in, in verse number 20 and 22. He says this statement. Listen to what he says about Timothy. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. 
For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. See, Timothy had been with Paul, shoulder to shoulder, place to place, beating that Paul took after beating. Timothy watched what it would take to be a minister of the gospel, and many times he saw Paul go through heartache, and he would see being enlisted in Paul's teamwork of church planting ministry, and Paul would go around, and now he's saying to Timothy, you watched me, you watched what God entrusted to me, now it's your turn, God has called you to do something and you're gonna be in Ephesus. He says, my child, and it's in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. You know, he wants us to remain focused, but he also wants us to remain focused on the calling that God has given to us in our life. Here, Paul has laying at Timothy's charge no small task to refute false teaching in the midst of a culture that was being uh, sexually immoral at every single turn and the list of, of, of various behavioral conducts that we have been through. He's saying to him, Timothy, you're going to have to remain focused because here's what you're up against. You're up against a church and a world and people who even say that they're believers and they say that they believe the gospel and yet they're doing all kinds of wicked practices and they're not even following their conscience. And they're not even following the word of God. And now he sends Timothy in the midst of that knowing that he has been proven. This is a very interesting reality to the life of Timothy when you think about those in which we, in, that we have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy was tried. He was no, in some sense, although he may have felt timid, he was, in a sense, no novice of the job. He had traveled with Paul. He had been up against a variety of different things. He knew what it was going to take. And yet, do you recognize this? Every time, even for us as believers, when we know what it's going to take to stand against the gospel, we do so with a level of fear and trepidation in our own souls. You do it when all of a sudden, everyone else is doing something opposite in the world or at your school and the things that they're saying and the things that they're getting involved with. And, and all of a sudden you say, ah, excuse me, you know, God says that's not right. And someone looks at you and says, God who? And who cares? You and I will have to stand firm as we go in the midst of the calling that God has given to us. For Timothy, it was the calling to pastor the church at Ephesus. To remain faithful to a body of people who are being influenced by false teaching. But everyone has a level of a calling where God has called you to be a place where you're going to school, a group of friends that you have to be around. What kind of example are you being? What kind of life are you living? See, the charge here is that you've been entrusted, if you're a believer who's, who's repented and trusted in Christ, you have, you've been entrusted with this for the sake of the gospel. When we start tampering with, with the gospel, what's at jeopardy is people not understanding the truths of eternal life. But you, got, you and I have to remember our calling. Not everyone will be called to be a pastor of a church. Not everyone will be called to be a deacon in a church. Many are going to be called to be faithful uh, and serve in a variety of different ways. But wherever God has placed you, I think it begs the question in your own life, are you doing 
well with what has been entrusted to you as you go about living your life as a life that is not just says they believe the gospel, but a life that exemplifies the gospel. There's a reason why you ought to have a sense of moral bearing in your life. There's a reason why that you should make sure that what comes out of your mouth is holy and pleasing unto the Lord. Because every thought, word, deed, and action, you and I will stand before the King of Kings and he, we will give an account of our lives. And Paul said to Timothy, remember, my child, who has entrusted this to me and I am entrusting it to you. And guess what? In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now this is something interesting and foreign often as we, as we look in our, in our context of church ministry. So often in the life of the first century church, as the, as the uh, gospel and the truths of the scripture were, were being written down by the number of apostles and, and those who had God has chosen to inspire the word of God, that all of a sudden, that within the life of the New Testament early church, they would have a prophetic ministry, those who had a confirmation, which who would understand. Now notice what he's saying. It's in accordance with the prophecies that were previously made about you, Timothy. See, at a moment where we, when, we, when we don't have the written word of God in Revelation to say, well, what does God want? You know, think about it in this kind of way. Paul was just writing to Timothy to give him 1 Timothy 3 and all the requirements of elders and deacons. But the confirmation of whether that was true, they didn't all have it written down. They didn't all have an inscripturated Bible in front of them. And so in a, as a ministry of, of prophecy in the early New Testament church, there was confirmation. Now, do, how do we know that? Because we see this same kind of reality happening in Acts chapter 13 when Paul and Barnabas were going out on their missionary journey. Do you remember that account? And the church was gathered together and the Holy Spirit of God confirmed it and said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for this particular task of ministry. What that did for the church, preceding having the very inscripturated word of God, it had confirmed that these were the men God wanted. And in this case, Paul is reminding Timothy of that prophetic ministry in the New Testament church at that time, okay, so that he would remind himself God was in the midst of what is happening in your location, being a, being a pastor of the Ephesian church, God was the one who put you here. It was not men, it was not me, and I love you as a son in the faith, Timothy, Paul would think, but it was God who confirmed it. And when God confirms something, Timothy should have a more sure disposition to say, Timothy, remember those prophecies. Now, I know you're asking the question in your mind, well, okay, well, what was the prophecy then? We don't exactly know exactly what was said to Timothy. Now, there seems to be a number of different things in the sense that there was more than one thing because you have prophecies in the plural. So there was a number of things that Timothy was supposed to look back at and say this one thing. God confirmed this, that I am supposed to be doing the thing right here that I'm supposed to be doing. Paul put me here, as a, and, and God confirmed it, and all of this is going on, and so this is what? This is no mistake. 
I am not just here by accident. I am not just here on some random journey. God put me here and confirmed it through that word. Now, as the close of the scripture and canonization occurred, you understand that in the book of 1 Corinthians, some of these miraculous components have ceased. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there are prophecy, they will be done away with. Why? Well, because that when the perfect comes, which is the completed word of God. And so what do we have? An inscripturated understanding of who should lead and why they should be there and where they should go and how a church should walk through that. And Timothy, this was validated through the prophetic means and it was made about him and he was supposed to remember that calling for the sake of waging the good warfare. It's almost to the reality of saying, I don't know. I mean, when God puts you at a certain place, have you ever thought to yourself, hey, did I miss something? Should I really be here? Ever thought that about yourself? He gives you a job, gives you a place, perhaps gets you to a church and you're still thinking to yourself, should I be here? Well, if Timothy was wondering, Paul is saying, no, Paul, Paul says, I know this is hard, Timothy. There's false teachers. There's all kind of ungodly behavior. But God brought you here for a reason. And he wants to use you for a reason. And your job is to remain focused on that task that he has given to you. Now, why does that matter to us so much when we think about being entrusted with these things so that by them we might wage the good warfare. Understand this, that waging the good warfare for, for Timothy and this instruction to Timothy was all about remembering. Remember what God confirmed. Remember what God said. Remember it's no accident. Remember the people that you're serving. These aren't just random people. These are people that God brought together for a very unique purpose. And I am entrust, and God is entrusting us to be together as a body and to be united the way he calls us to be united. There is no accident. Are you remaining faithful in God's call to your own life? What was your life like last week as a Christian? Sure, you can polish yourself up and put on various things and have a good attitude and have some eggs and cinnamon rolls and have a smile. But let me ask you something. Do you really want to be here? See, because many people go through their Christian life in some sense of a hypocritical nature where they say one thing and do another. They confess and they even profess various lives of Christianity and yet when they're going out about their business, how they live their life, how they're, how they're a boss, how they're a father, how they're a mother, I have been in contact with enough Christian people to realize that sometimes there can be a disconnect and people get distracted. Can I just tell you this? If you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, you know what, I've been distracted for a while. Let me encourage you for a minute. God knows that he doesn't want you distracted. God knows that you are here, not by accident this morning, hearing the things that we are talking about, and it is, it is not too late to get refocused on the things of the gospel to make sure that you are being faithful to the things that have been entrusted to you. Young person, every time you go to school, every person you interact with, uh, college students, every time you get together with other people, if you're, if you're beyond that and you go to work, what kind, what kind of person are you? How would people describe your Christianity? 
but they describe it as one who is being faithful to the gospel. They know something's different. They might not be able to put their finger on it, but there's something at work in you that doesn't be, uh, be, uh, is at work in them, and they recognize it. We have to remain faithful. Paul says this over and over again in the New Testament, by the way. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Uh, think about this verse. So whether we are, we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it be good or evil. Is your aim in your life to simply please him and him alone? It cannot be about getting the accolades of other people. It cannot be to be the most academically in academic individual where you're saying, oh, look at I'm wise. Because God has to confuse the wisdom of the world to bring what real wisdom is and bring the gospel. It's not what you think you know. It's not what occupation you have. It's not whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a factory worker. It's none of those things. Your aim and my aim in all the things that we do must be with one central focus. Its aim is to please him and him alone. Believers, are we doing that? There's times where I see in my own heart a sense of distractedness where my mind and my heart wants to go to other things. And I think if you were honest with yourself, you'd see that same thing working in your own heart as well. And a re-evaluation re of what, what matters in life. What purpose do I live with? You know what one of those purposes are? To entrust gospel ministry to other people, to disciple other people. And I, I want you to think for a minute as I ask this question. Paul had a Timothy Do you have people that you're entrusting the gospel to? Do you have people right now that come to your mind that you're thinking, I'm going to entrust these very good gospel words to, that they're so important that I call them to remain focused, and I am deliberately making effort to see people and what God is doing, and I'm entrusting them with ministry. You know, it's so often we think to ourselves, well, how do we have a church that survives from generation to generation? Here's how you do it. You entrust it to faithful people. You know, if I had, if, if all of a sudden someone came to me and wanted to borrow my car and I knew they had a track record of getting in an accident every other time that they, they drove, I would not give them the keys to my car. And if somebody has a track record of deviating from the truth of the gospel, I am not going to put them, or we are not as a church going to put them in positions that they cannot be trusted in to give the true, full sense and foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I must interact with one another. How do you entrust things to people in whom you don't take time to even know if you could entrust them something with? Which means it's a deliberate Reality that relationships must be a central priority in your life. You ought to be coming alongside people going, you know what? I see something in you. I see something you're doing. And you know what? 
God wants, I want you to come alongside me for a while. I want to entrust some things to you. And then I want you to get out there and do that. That is the whole point of discipleship. Church body, this needs to happen church-wide. Men and women and young people and teenagers, everyone. You need to be thinking to yourself, who am I entrusting and discipling with the truths of the gospel? Which means you got to know the gospel, you got to believe the gospel, because you'll have nothing to give if you don't have this central truth entrusted to other people. Make mentorship and discipleship a priority for you. You know, I often think in many occasions when, uh, over, the, over the years of ministry, I remember speaking with my dad who was 28 years in ministry and asking him, who mentored you? Who discipled you? And there can be generations where all of a sudden, and for my dad, it was often like this. It was more caught than taught. I just tried to be around people. And that's a good way to do it. There's a good element that can be drawn out. But what happens when you actually bring and you come alongside someone and you bring them next to you? And you're not just wondering, are you catching what I'm, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Where you go, okay, now what? What is this? Now it's your turn. See, it is so important to us as a church that we not just proclaim it from the pulpit, but that we live out discipleship in the body. And you, you and I, we've got we've to stay focused on that task in a world. Now what, what, relieves, what comes between all of this is often this. This is why I think people don't do it. I really believe this. Because it's going to cost you something. You know what's going to cost you? Time. And everybody seems to live with a sense of not enough time. And people will use excuses. Well, if I only had enough time. I'm telling you, if I were to use that excuse... You should call me out. It is not because God all of a sudden saw fit that 24 hours in a day is not enough. It is what I'm doing with the time he's given to me. Discipleship will take your energy, it will take your time, and as you're gonna see in this passage, it will even be dispensed at times on people who will walk away from the faith who you thought were believers, but really turned out to be unbelievers. Countless number of times over the years of pastoral ministry, it pains my heart with hours and hours and hours, and it doesn't pain my heart in the reality that I took time. Is that the gospel truce of the scripture, somehow in all the time that we spent, didn't permeate their soul. Because I'll take hours. That doesn't bother me. But I want it to permeate the person's soul. Because that's where God's central focus is, is their heart. This is the call for us, and we often don't fulfill this calling and stay focused to the task because we know what it'll cost us. And I'm, I'm challenging you right now as you look at your own schedule. Do you build in time for discipleship? and entrusting 
ministry to other people. Yeah, it's going to cost you an early morning and maybe you buy somebody breakfast and maybe you go somewhere and do something you wouldn't normally do. It's going to cost you something. But everything it costs you will be worth it in the end because you will have entrusted to faithful people, faithful men and women to be what God wants them to be and to remain steadfast to that calling. For Timothy, it was confirmed by these prophetic messages when he was called into ministry and we look at other passages. It occurred when the, when the apostle ordained, was ordaining him to ministry and laid hands on him. And at that moment, you can read in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and following, if you want to write it down, you read it later. And he says, fan this into flame. Then remember what, what you is this confirmation of the gospel and use it to wage the good warfare of your life. Why is this waging warfare such a challenge? Is because of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Believer, do you believe that the gospel in your life and the transforming of your own heart and the redeeming of your own life and regenerating of your own soul, that that is enough to fight the powers of Satan that are in the world? It is. He has no control over you. You have been bought with a price. You are his now. And if you are his... You'll hear Paul say over and again, don't live like the world. You've been entrusted with this truth. Then wage a good warfare and it's going to be spiritual. It's going to be prayer. You look at Ephesians chapter six and you see the armor of God. And these are spiritual dimensions. And you have to ask yourself, do you walk out of the house without your armor on? thinking that you can go live a life successfully without this. It's not possible, Christian. I mean, how would you feel all of a sudden you got a fiery dart coming your way and you're like, oh shoot, where's my shield of faith? That happens for so many Christians because they lose sight of what God has called them to do. Waging the good warfare is a spiritual battle that occurs and begins in the mind that then will begin to transform your conduct. So remain focused, but don't do just that. Remain faithful to him. The battle is so intense at various moments in your life and in my life, you notice this as we look at these verses. Holding, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul is saying to Timothy, of all the gifts that you've had and all the confirmation you received, you know what you should be doing and you know why you should be doing it. And this is no accident. You know the aim of the charge that we've given is love. You're supposed to address the false teachers. But Timothy, keep the faith. Hold on to it. There are going to be so many things that are going to be tempting to be distracted. Things that will be of greater value to you in your own mind. How will you know when all of a sudden something becomes more to you than it should be? It's all of a sudden when God decides to not let you have something that you think you should have. Do you notice that? All of a sudden when he goes, 
yeah, I'm not giving that to you. Almost like I almost want to audibly turn around like, what? Are you, are you kidding me? Like I've been doing this and I've been, I, but I want that. I, I, I think he's saying, I know you want it. You don't need it. You don't need this. You need me. And this faithfulness is this idea, holding the faith. What is this? It is this here, when it's talking about faith, it's not talking about essentially the content of the gospel. It is talking about the activity of a spirit-filled, redeemed individual who has repented of their sin. They are holding the faith. They are actively trusting God. And you know, you and I, we have to do that in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. We're doing that in the midst of loss of loved ones, in the midst of illnesses, in the midst of, uh, of, of, of growing a family, in the midst of hardship and miscommunication. We're actively looking to hold on to our faith. There's plenty in this world of people that you could come across and, and turn on your television for a while and you'll see on every single venue you could, you could imagine people who are trying to draw your attention away from what matters the most. Oh, this will be a good time and this is what it's a life that is really fulfilling has looked like. And all of a sudden it's like, this is the kind of truck you should drive and this is the kind of car you should have and these are the kind of clothes you should wear. And we get distracted from holding and actively trusting God, and then we don't become content, and we think that our faith should be something that now it's faith plus some a whole bunch of other things that we need to have in order to live a successful life. Faith alone is enough. And he says, Timothy, hold on to this faith. And I cannot tell you enough as your pastor, as one of your elders, Christians, members, those who are here this morning, hold on to the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. It is the hope that you have. It is the reason why you live. It is, it is the reason why your conduct is supposed to be the way it is. Hold onto it. You're gonna be living around people in the midst of workplaces, and they're gonna, you might even be actively told, why do you even do that? It doesn't even make any sense, and there's no benefit from it. But you and I must hold the faith actively trusting in God's word, living by God's principles, leading us to godly conduct so that as we're in the midst of a world that they recognize there's something different about us. And that something different that they see needs to be Jesus Christ in us. It is holding the faith and a good conscience. Now notice these things are often, for Paul, these are, these are categories that are not mutually exclusive. In fact, in the pastoral epistles, you often see these two realities together. Because what he's saying here is holding the faith, actively trusting in the gospel and what it's supposed to do in your life, it is, it is a belief or, a, or an understanding of truth that gets practiced in your conduct. This is why he's saying this list of unholy conduct in the previous verses. He's saying they're bypassing their conscience. See, your conscience works as you, act, as you continue to actively trust in God. And even as unbelievers who have the law of God written on their heart, it either, it either is commending them or condemning them. That's the two functions that it serves. And as it for the believer, it is supposed to commend you. The more that you hold the faith, the more your conscience is saying, good, you're doing right. There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no, 
there's no uh, regret of all the things that you shouldn't be doing. He says, Timothy, actively trust the Lord and a good conscience. Now, I will extend this as well. These are two instruments by which Paul tells Timothy to wage warfare. Don't only just remember who you were and your calling and your confirmation, but hold the faith. Keep the faith. This is how you wage warfare. You don't wage warfare well. You don't see armies like, hey, we're going to send you off into battle. I don't think you guys are going to win, though. But suit up, guys, and grab your stuff. That's what he's saying. Hold the faith. Keep trusting. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, has defeated Satan on the cross. And yet so often we, we act and live as if he has not done that. He has done it. And he's not looking for us to do it again. He didn't need any help. It's a once-for-all sacrifice that has now been achieved in which we can then actively trust in and that our conscience continues to affirm this is good. It's how I wage the warfare. I trust in active faith in the gospel and my conscience continually and repetitively confirms that faithful response to the gospel. We have to hold on to it. It's something you notice in the verbiage, in the language. It's just not a past action. It's a present duty. Every Christian should be, is called to hold and to keep the faith. And these are these weapons of warfare in which he uses. Faith is always a weapon against Satan who lacks faith in God. I mean, the power of faith is a remarkable thing in the Gospels, is it not? That Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, would say something like this to the disciples when they came and they, wanted, they were going out trying to do ministry and they came back not doing it successfully. And they said, Jesus, why wasn't this ministry successful? And he says to them in Matthew 17, 20, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Okay? That doesn't mean we got a, a mountain mover ministry where people really filled with faith are you know, across the world moving mountains. What we're saying is look at the power of faith. And it's not, it's faith in the work that has been finished on the cross. Jesus says if that amount of faith can be that powerful, then what happens, Paul's thinking to Timothy, you got to hold on to that. Hold on to the faith, and your conscience will continue to reaffirm that. Because the alternate is also true. Because there were some, by rejecting this, and what is this referring to? Well, I think its nearest antecedent is the good conscience. Because unbelievers don't hold the faith. They don't believe in the faith. So what he's saying is, even unbelievers and false teachers don't abide by their good conscience because the law of God is written on their heart. And when they don't abide by the conscience that God has even given them, they even are led to despicable kinds of, of immorality that, he, that I previously mentioned, Paul would say to Timothy. 
You want to know how they got there? They didn't abide by the conscience that was interacting with the law of God in their heart, and God gave them over again and again to sensuality and to the pleasures of this world, and they became disobedient, and they did not care about the gospel. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the massively, glaringly obvious thing in the text. These were people in the church. These weren't people who were outside the church. These were people who were inside the church house. Somehow, they faked everybody out. You know what that tells me? Not everybody here may be as genuine as we think they are. I know that's hard for us to think about, isn't it? Like, well, no, I know everybody in here. I am not so naive to think to myself that all of a sudden, that everybody in this room is a repentant believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think this is a testimony for Paul to simply say to Timothy, there are those who have rejected this good conscience, and, they, and, and, and by doing this, they have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, it also begs another glaring question. Well, are these believers then that became unbelievers, and now they had salvation, but now they lost salvation? No, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the reality that people, if they, you can't lose something you never had to begin with. But you can reveal all of a sudden that you didn't ever have it. Well, how do you know that? When all of a sudden, the very truths that you once professed, you go against them. And this is what the Bible in the category calls an apostate or it calls apostasy. Those who have been given a certain understanding of a body of truth, and they apostatize. They say they once believed this, and this was the truth they lived by, but now, all of a sudden, these false teacher has led people, and they say, you know what, no, I don't believe that anymore. I now believe this. And what that tells you is, you never really believed this to begin with. And what he's saying is some have shipwrecked of their faith. Now, there's a challenging contextual argument where the idea of this in this text, and before he says, holding faith, no article, and at the end of the verse, he says, some have shipwrecked the faith. And he uses the article. Now, in the translators of, uh, in many ways, uh, translate this article as there, as a possessive reality. Now, you can per perhaps maybe go either way, but I think probably a really good way to understand it is that those who have shipwrecked the faith, in the context of false teaching, what we are recognizing is that the body of truth that they said that they anchored themselves to, they have shipwrecked it because it is not recognizable anymore because they believe in myths and genealogies and a law that doesn't point to Christ that produces a conduct that is anything but gospel-centered. And now when people look at their lives, they can't even understand the gospel. They can't even see the content of the gospel in, at work in them. Because in this category, he's saying, they've taken the, the, the gospel and the content of the gospel, and, they've, and he uses the word shipwrecked it. It just tore it to pieces. And it can't, I can't even, I don't even know what it is anymore. And so I think he's saying, Timothy, hold the faith 
actively trust in, in, the, in, in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, because if you don't actively hold, you will then become like one who has shipwrecked the faith. And why is the charge so important? Because these false teachers were leading people straight to eternal damnation in hell. And they were telling them a gospel and diverting people from a gospel that would not save. What that means is, it, it says this to me. Holding, your, holding the faith in a good conscience that your personal integrity matters to God. The way you live your life out side of this church, it matters. You don't just live it here. It is something you hold on to as you go about living your life. You hold on to the faith in a good conscience in such a way where this personal integrity, you keep it close. You do what 1 Timothy chapter 4, 16 says, when Paul says to Timothy later on, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I've met plenty of people who have, been, who have been confirmed to gospel ministry, but in the private moments of their life, they weren't about the gospel. And I'll tell you, some of the saddest, most heartbreaking components that I have seen as a pastor are people who have been in the church who everybody knew for over decades of their life, they had convinced people that they were a believer and all of a sudden, they, it comes to light that they're really not. It's a missionary who's been confirmed to the gospel work and has taken it overseas. And all of a sudden, I get word as a pastor, no, they're, they're coming home from the mission field because they're caught up in some kind of sexual immorality and adultery. And who they were on the outside is not who they were on the inside. Can I say to you, Christian, keep watch over yourself. It doesn't matter what, what the, the calling is, but you've got to look at your heart. You can't just say, I'm going to tell everybody else to do this, but not pay attention to what's going on in your marriage, what's going on in your family, what's going on at your workplace, what's going on in your friend groups. It is so important that who you are on the outside is who you are on the inside. Because you're not fooling God. You can fool a whole bunch of other people, but integrity and holding the faith matters. And so how you live your lives, which means in the Christian community, there should be something different about relationships, about marriages, about friendships, about camaraderie, about unity, because they're all built off this unifying principle of the gospel. You can't just do whatever you want and say that I'm a Christian. Your life and my life have to match what being a Christian is supposed to mean. Have an integrity where you're not just saying, I want to entrust these things to you, but I personally don't really live by them. No, who you are and entrusting other things to other people, you have to model that. That's why Paul often would say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we need to be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. Remember, this battle is against a spiritual warfare. It's going to take prayer, and that is, a, that is one of the weapons, prayer and the word. Know the truth, because Satan is the father of lies. He wants to have people who just apostatize and say, you know what, I don't care. I'm really not a believer. 
But some people become believers in the midst of a Christian community because it's just so good being around other Christians. You love people differently, and all of a sudden, Christianity becomes a thing like, well, everybody else is going, I'm going to look like a fool if I don't, so I guess I'm a Christian too. I just like how they love people, and I like being benefited from it. And so people can come, but the real marker is, do you believe genuinely in the gospel? And have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ so that you can remain full of hope? You notice this in this last section. He calls out two individuals, and Paul doesn't really do this very often by name. But in this text, he says, there's two guys who are in the Ephesian church, one by the name of Hymenaeus and another by the name of Alexander, who have been diverting other people from the gospel. And they have been leading people astray. They have not been, they have apostatized. Well, we don't exactly know all the content of, of their teaching, but one of the things that we do recognize is that Hymenaeus is brought up in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, where it says that by the words of Hymenaeus, if they, if they keep allowing it to go on, it would spread like gangrene, and he's telling people that the resurrection has already occurred and that it is disrupting people's faith. And Hymenaeus was leading other people astray and telling them things that weren't necessarily true. And Alexander is kind of a different, uh, uh, a different individual. We don't, uh, there's a lot of Alexanders in, in Roman history, so we don't know exactly which uh, Alexander he's talking about. But what I think we can know for sure is, coupled with Hymenaeus, these two guys made a, quite a duo in spreading a false gospel that was diverting people away from the true gospel. And he's saying Hymenaeus and Alexander, as they continued to, to work and in in, in, in be in the church of Ephesus, he says, and then he says this shocking statement, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, Paul had a level of apostolic authority in the New Testament church. In fact, if you look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we see that the church is built on the prophets and, and all of these Old Testaments and the apostles and the pastors and teachers. There was a sense of apostolic authority that Paul in, in planting churches had when he would write back a letter and they would get a letter and they would see it's from Paul. It wasn't like, eh, we'll read that later. It's like, this is Paul talking. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's got something to say. Well, Paul, in a sense here, says whom I have handed over to Satan. Paul had already understood that the disposition of the conduct of these individuals who had now apostatized in the faith, they needed to be handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, what does that exactly mean to be handed over to Satan? Well, one of the things that we recognize in the Bible is that in the, in the, in the truth, we'll hear that the, the world is the realm of Satan. He's the prince and power of the air. He is the one who controls, in a sense, uh, various deception and lies and all things that are orchestrated in the world. Not control in the sense of sovereign. God is the only one who's sovereign. But in the sense of that he is the father of lies and the prince in power of the air. He's trying to disrupt the redemptive uh, uh, purposes of God. And he says... To hand them over to Satan is to hand them over to a realm in which Satan is the primary deceiver and will have full 
wait to, to, to do things in their life where they have no protection anymore. Now, what's the protection from? Well, we notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when this was going on in the life of the Corinthian church, that when the man who was, the incestuous man who was put outside the church, Paul uses almost the same exact language in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. He says, I've handed him over to Satan. And then in this idea, you know what this is? This, this is reminiscent of the reality of what church discipline really does in its culmination. That you take them out of the, ro- the realm of being a member in the co- protective unit of the body and you put them into a different realm in which now Satan will have full reign to do whatever he needs to do. Now notice his goal. Now he doesn't say, he doesn't stop. I want you to notice this. He doesn't say, you know what? You're the devil's child. And that's all you'll ever be. He doesn't say that. He's saying, I'm going to hand you over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, now what this is saying is there was still hope for them. Now connect this with Paul's life for a moment. Paul said, I was once a blasphemer. And God brought me to a saving knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. There's hope for people, but at this point, they're in the body. They cannot be doing this inside the body, and the body can't just say, oh, that's all right. There is a protective measure that occurs within the confines of the body of Christ that you and I experience the protection. And Paul is saying, remove it. Remove the protection put them outside the body because they are not believers. They cannot be members. And, and by means, so that by hope, they will learn not to blaspheme God or go against God's holy purposes in their life that they might be redeemed. Can I just say this? Don't lose hope for people's lives even if it comes to a conclusion where their lives have to be set outside the body into a realm in which Satan has full reign and control because God uses those moments in people's lives to draw them to an understanding that they should not go against God and his word. He put that in the Bible. It is so important for us to do the things and be bold and to make sure that we have a heart of sincerity and love Paul is not saying, I'm just going to do this and then you're done. He said, there's hope for this person if they, if they listen to the gospel. In a sense, don't become a traitor. And for us as a body, let's always be willing to do the hard things, even though sometimes the hard things are uncomfortable. But when we do things that God says is right, even though they're uncomfortable, God himself is pleased that we would be willing to hold the faith and the gospel so high that we would not allow one another to live lives of whatever we want them to look like, that we hold each other accountable to the truths of the living gospel. The more we do that, the more we will fight the good fight of faith. And we will wage war with a good conscience. And we hold on to it. This is so important for us as we live our lives as a Christian Are you remaining focused? Are you remaining faithful? Are you remaining full of hope, Christian? That God has got a plan. He wants to use you. He wants you to actively trust in him each and every day of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much.
for your kind care for us. Lord, the charge that Paul would give to Timothy that we have the opportunity to look into this morning, that we would be people who would hold the faith with a good conscience, that we would wage a good warfare. We would remember that our lives, we have been saved not by accident, but by the sovereign, elective hand of God. Lord, that as we remember those things, we would live lives that are pleasing to him, knowing that we will answer to him at the end of our days. In your name we pray, amen.